0: Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Maha Sar, a Palestinian non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is May 18th, 2022, and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Ahlam Muhtasib. Dr. Muhtasib is a professor of media studies at California State University in San Bernardino. Her research interests include digital communication, social media, social justice, and diasporic communities. Her most recent project is the award-winning documentary, 1948, Creation and Catastrophe. Co-produced and co-directed with Andy Trimlett, it focuses on the year 1948 and its catastrophic consequences for the Palestinian nation. Dr. Muhtaseb won the 2019 Rebuilding Alliance Storyteller Award, and the film, won the Jerusalem International Film Festival's 2019 Special Jury Award in the Feature Documentary category. This past Sunday on May 15th, millions of Palestinians and their supporters around the world commemorated Nakba Day. Nakba is the Arabic word for catastrophe, and it's how Palestinians remember 1948, the year the State of Israel was created, and the year in which over three quarters of a million Palestinians fled or were expelled from their homes and their homeland. Given the importance of Nakba Day in the Palestinian national calendar, I'm especially excited to be speaking with you today. So thank you, Ahlam, for being
1: here. Thank you very much uh, for hosting me and um, I look forward to our conversation.
0: I do as well. So just to share with our listeners, you and I first met at the international premiere of your film, 1948, Creation and Catastrophe which was at the Arizona International Film Festival here in Tucson in 2017. And I remember when I first heard that this film was premiering and I thought I need to see this and I'm so glad I did. So to start us off, can you talk to us about why you wanted to make this film?
1: Uh, Thank you again, uh, Dr. Nassar. And I would like to start by acknowledging that I'm joining you all from the unceded colonized lands of the Pechanga tribe of the Luizano First Nation in Southern California. And, um, you know, we're meeting at a very tough time for Palestinians, you know, around the Nakba uh, event. And it's, you know, that's probably one reason why I wanted to make the film, but it's, it's really a journey for me. You know, it was a journey that started with uh, being a graduate student, and being specialized in digital communication or computer-mediated communication. And doing uh, you know a lot of papers as a graduate student, critiquing media representation of issues related to Arabs and Muslims, but of course, particularly about Palestinians and the misrepresentation of our issues, um, especially of course, the history. And I've noticed since I came to the States in 1998 on a Fulbright scholarship, that the majority of Americans don't know anything. And if they know, usually it's distorted. Uh, A lot of the myths were, oh, this is a very old conflict. Like I I could never understand it. It has been going on for thousands of years. It's between Muslims and Jews Um, and and all of these myths. And it was so frustrating to try to explain to them that that's not true. Actually, it's a more uh, contemporary type of conflict, if you want to call it a conflict. And that, you know, its roots could be understood, and could be researched, and it's not really that difficult to understand it. Actually, for Palestinians, it was quite the opposite. It was straightforward for us, like, what is it that you can't understand? So I uh, started kind of like changing my mindset with also, I have to say, the um, revolution in information technology, and, you know, um, the the process of filmmaking becoming actually quite affordable and accessible to many individuals that didn't necessarily demand the huge budgets and, you know, the sophisticated processes of filming and editing and producing. So it became a more realistic idea for people to think, oh, I could make a film or I could, um, you know, defy, uh, a, a certain narrative and, 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 and that was in you know at the beginning of the 2000s so I started shifting that my mindset from media criti- critique and knowledge critique into media production and knowledge production and this is how the whole idea started uh, when I was a graduate student around 2002-2003 and I could tell you later about the progress of course.
0: So let's turn to that a little bit. So the seeds of the idea were planted a good now two decades ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film came out in 2017, about five years ago. So that's quite a long process. Um, And in the course of producing the film and and making the film, you conducted interviews with Palestinian refugees who are still living in refugee camps to this day Mm -hmm. in Lebanon and Syria and Palestine. So, can you tell us a bit more about the process of interviewing Palestinian refugees? And something I noticed in particular about the film is that many of them still clearly carry the trauma of 1948 with them. So, what was that process like, as well?
1: So, I'm going to link this to the first question, as you know, we talked about it. And um, as I said, you know, uh, I started conceptualizing a project where I wanted to focus on Palestinian refugees' narratives and to to kind of like center and amplify those narratives because I got married to a refugee in the United States after, you know, um, actually during my last year of my doctorate. Uh, And and I started like having this intimate, you know, closeness to those narratives. And I saw how crucial they were in my husband's family. Um, And that's how, you know, I really started thinking. I I have to start working on on that project. So I wanted to go and collect uh, Palestinian narratives of Shatat or Nakba as we say in Arabic or diaspora in English, and how that actually helped maintain um, kind of like through collective trauma, collective identity uh, for the refugees away from home. And my focus was on Syria and Lebanon originally, especially Lebanon because the refugees there, they live a a very, Even more marginalized, you know, uh, situation and conditions than those of other refugees, like those in Syria at that time, or in Jordan, or even in Palestine. So uh, this is how I started. So I got some grants after I was hired by Cal State San Bernardino. I got some internal grants, uh, bought you know, like filming equipment,s um, and then took off. Went to Lebanon first. I went to Syria, and I filmed a lot in um, in Damascus in Yarmouk refugee camp, which almost doesn't exist anymore as a, you know, it, this is a refugee camp that was thriving actually. It, it The conditions were not as bad as they were in other uh, camps. And, you know, during the latest events in Syria, it was totally destroyed. And after having around over 1 million people living in it, Syrians and Palestinians, by the way, now it's in shambles and, Probably there are only a few thousand, few, uh, thousand people living there. Uh, so I had the chance, actually, that was my first site of filming and, and, and research. And then I went to, and it was like a more of ethnographic oral study, oral history project. So then I moved to Lebanon uh, after working two weeks, I think, in uh, Al-Yarmouk. And in Lebanon, I started filming in Shatila and Burj al-Barajna and then Israel actually started its uh, invasion uh, of Lebanon. And by coincidence, I left Lebanon. I wanted to go to Palestine. By coincidence, I left the day they actually shelled and raised the airport in Beirut, like few hours. I left few hours before that by, as I said, coincidence. Mm
0: -hmm. And just to remind everyone, this would be in 2006, correct?
1: Yes, yes, the second invasion, not the first one, 1982. And so I, my work was interrupted and I had to come back to the States. Then I decided I got more grants and I went back and this is actually in 2008, but in 2007, I met Andy and he was the one who convinced me to focus on 1948. And, um, you know, uh, on, on the, for him, he said, like, as average Americans, you know, what they don't really get is it's the events around 1948 because of the systematic ethnic expulsion. They don't understand that. And so they get confused about, they think that Israel had been there forever. They don't don't think in those terms that actually to make room for the state of Israel, you had to ethnically expel and conduct genocide against Palestinians to make room for uh, the newly created state. So um, we joined forces in 2008 and I started, I went back and I started filming again Uh, I spent uh, a whole month in Beirut. Uh, I worked like five days every day um, in all of the refugee camps in Beirut. I couldn't go beyond Beirut because it was um, during like some turmoil and some political disruptions. And I tried to like go to other um, refugee camps like Nahril beret for example, and Rashidi. And it was just impossible, like all... The restrictions and you have to get military clearance etc and I did you know we Andy and I we did several rounds of filming in Palestine and uh, Lebanon in Syria we also filmed in the United States some of the interviews were filmed actually here some of the interviews one interview was filmed in Canada uh, two interviews actually three three or four interviews I'm trying to remember uh, four interviews were filmed in uh, England, and one of them actually in Scotland with the only uh, surviving uh, British uh, soldier we could find. So we sent a team to Scotland to film him actually. Um, so um, seven, seven countries in total. And um, you asked me about filming the refugees. Um, I, for me, it was very important to center Palestinian refugees narratives and voices that was very important but at the same time we also needed to film the perpetrators you know and to have, and, and hope, we were not sure if we would get them to speak about what they did on camera eventually we succeeded with some but believe it or not many wouldn't speak um and so that was my focus it was not easy for so many logistical reasons uh you know finding uh survivors uh because we i started filming as i said in 2006 and people were already in their 60s you know and 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 above who actually remembered Palestine right so we were losing all that generation of Palestinian survivors and I thought I, I honestly felt like I was racing with time throughout this project and what was drastic is when I sent um, um, a, pro, a, a production uh, assistant to collect, uh, signed consent forms from the people who ended up being in the uh, in the documentary. Remember, we actually did over 100 interviews, but only 33 were used. With only 33 of those in the documentary, so we went back to collect those uh, signatures. And I was devastated to learn that the majority of the people I interviewed actually had died at that time. And this was this was in 2014 or 2015, so a long time ago. And they already most of them were died and. Um, just sitting through this, I guess it was not as difficult as people might think, because people always ask me about how it felt. And, you know, when you are doing production, you are on like autopilot kind of mentality. I have to do all the logisticals Uh, every day, you know, in production, you have to line up the interviews, you have to have a timeline of your day so you maximize, you know, your work efficiency. Uh, what am I going to go Which refugee camps? Uh, contact, you know, your fixers and production assistants. Um, making sure you have money to pay people and sometimes to have, you have to feed them, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, camera operators and, you know, uh, fixers, et cetera. And so I... I feel like I did not really pay a lot of attention during the interviews because I was always, even when I'm interviewing them, I'm still thinking about, okay, don't forget after this, we have to go to this place or, you know, looking at the, your watch and, and making sure you are not late for your next appointment. I think it hit me when I started capturing all the videos at the end, the last day for me in Lebanon, I sat down uh, in the room where I was, you know, hosted by a Lebanese family, actually in Beirut. So I got, a rented uh, capturing um, machine to download all the interviews. So I won't lose them. I didn't want to send the original cassettes. I eventually, of course, mailed them, but I wanted to have a backup. And while downloading, I started like thinking, ah, I don't remember. I to this interview, like, I don't remember listening to it. It started hitting me. And then when I came here and started um, editing, I was like, oh my God, like, how did I sit through this? Like, this is too much to take. I started taking it all in uh, and see how devastating that was. So,
0: it's been so devastating. But what's amazing too to me about the film is that it it hits you, but it doesn't overwhelm you. You keep the pace of the film going in a way that doesn't. You don't. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it, but you don't get overwhelmed. But you do absorb the the devastation of it. So your film also features uh, interviews, as you said, with the perpetrators, with Israeli veterans from the 1948 war. Um, and so watching the film, I was surprised by the range of views they expressed. Well, I, wasn't, I was expecting, I think, a more triumphalist tone. And that's not what comes through in the interviews. So I'm curious, what was your reaction when you heard the Israeli veterans um, testimony? Uh, yeah, I'm curious about that.
1: Thank you for the question. Uh, you said it's not as overwhelming as one would think, and that's true. And I think we, it's the in post production when we were doing the editing, we did a lot of rough drafts and we changed things and we tested the film on my students, my uh, colleagues to, to see if they actually can first understand and follow the narrative. We changed it a lot, including, you know, even like the uh the, the phone type you know and the uh, subtitles and the two-thirds etc and and uh one of the uh important uh feedback that you could and some of it was actually from you after this even after we uh premiered at the Arizona International Film Festival because when we when they accepted our uh, film which was great Uh, we told them that it was still like not 100% finished, like we are still in post-production. And they said, that's fine. Usually that happens all the time. So uh, some of the the feedback was that it was too much and overwhelming. So we tried to actually insert some hopeful moments in terms of either Palestinian resistance uh, or Palestinians reminiscing or remembering their life with, you know, like to give the, we tried to, in two or three places to give uh, the audience a break, a little bit break, you know, uh, from all the the trauma that they experienced with the interviewees. And um, regarding the Israeli um, um, interviewees, that that's an important question because at the beginning we started giving hope in 2008. So I did my filming in Lebanon and then, Two months after, Andy was able to take off uh, time of his work and go and do uh, the interviews in Palestine. And his focus was really not to interview Palestinians, although he ended up interviewing a lot of Palestinians and doing a lot of B-roll in um, destroyed Palestinian villages and link those to the stories we heard in Lebanon, in Syria and other places. But his main task was really to find Israelis and interview them. And that was very challenging. So we had Israeli, um, product, you know, production uh, assistants and fixers, and and some of his friends who are, you know, of course, the very very minority of Israelis who believe in decolonizing their minds, who are anti-Zionist. Uh, those were not easy to find, but we have actually worked with the um, with the Israeli Palestinian organization Zochrot or Dakirat in Arabic, which means memories. And it's it's an organization dedicated really to decolonize knowledge on 1948. So they came up with the list of Israelis who lived through 1948 and who th- they thought would talk to us. They didn't give them, of course, much about our background. I was not in the picture totally, you know, I was out of it. Um, so it was uh, Andy mainly working on this. But then just before he um, was about to fly, they told him, no one wants to talk to us. Like, are you sure you want to come? And Andy was like, I reserved my ticket. I'm coming. So like, you better find me something like I'm not giving up on this because I have to come anyway. So eventually we found those few that you see in the interview, but we approached a lot. And even Andy, when he sat down and did some of the interviews um, we didn't succeed with all of them. So some people would start speaking and then they would stop and get very upset and not finish the interview. Some would be resisted by the spouses like he said a lot of the fighters the women would be there like their wives and they would be trying to not to shut them off you know like to say no don't say that like why are you saying this or protest the whole interview uh some uh after talking to andy decided not to do the interviews um so we had like a a range of people um before even doing the interviews who didn't or resisted, or he said some of the interviews we couldn't use because they didn't know, they tried to to drift away and talk about other things that we wanted, you know, other than what we wanted them uh, to talk about. So it was a challenge, but eventually he was able to collect the interviews you see that were usable actually in the film. How did I react? I was very, very angry (laughs) as a Palestinian, and I think, so there were, as you saw, like it was a spectrum. So there were the Israelis who denied, you don't see a lot of them because they would say something nonsense, like Palestinians just left, you know, took, and we know that, you know, with historical evidence from all sources that that's not true. So, like, whenever it really contradicted to a great extent, uh, the consensus, the scientific and scholarly consensus on what happened, we did not use those interviews. So these were ridiculous and expected, that did not impact me. And then there were those who kind of regretted or showed remorse, like uh, Hava Keller and Adam Keller. These were, at the beginning, you know, interesting. Uh, I think what triggered me most were those who, knew what they were doing, understood the consequences, and found a way to still live with it, and say, it's okay, I had to do this. And I think the most, uh, you know, like really infuriating one was uh, Mordechai ben Aur, who was considered a historian, but he also actually participated. And that's the culmination of my feelings, was when we were doing editing and I wanted to take that segment out of the film when he talks about killing a Palestinian point blank. And I kept on telling Andy take it out. And we actually edited on Zoom before people knew what Zoom was in 2014. Uh, And I said, this is terrible. Like, let's take it out. Why why do you want to? And he would like, no, why you don't want to include it? This actually gives a very important insight to the Zionist, you know, mentality. And I was like, I didn't know why every time he asked me, I, I had to confront myself and say, why I don't want to include it? Like, why? And I think because it triggered me in such a violent way as a Palestinian, like put aside filmmaker and scholar, I couldn't help it. But every time I listened to him say, I killed him point blank. after saying he Came back from uh, to to harvest. Actually, he says in the same breath, and that was a long unedited uh, segment, by the way, on purpose, of course. Uh, he actually says that those Palestinians came to harvest, you know, their land, and I was there to make sure they never come back. He still said, "Well, I had to, you know, to kill him. He killed him point blank because the Palestinians embraced him because he was so scared." And, and not only this, but when he not only justifying, but when he said I looked at him after he killed me and said, oh, poor fellow, you got it and laughs. He is a smirk. And it was just so violent for me really to watch it and think I, I just couldn't take it. And at the end, I had to force myself to stop asking Andy to take it out like uh. And just trust him in that, you know, process. So he had to work on that segment because I just couldn't. I uh, that was one of the moments. But even you know, people like Hava Keller, because a lot of I, I've seen, especially Americans, you know, uh, like average Americans, they love her, and they think she's great because she's she has remorse and she's talking about how out of a sudden when they were colonizing Akka or Acre. She noticed the baby shoes. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And that she started thinking, oh, you know, war is, uh, you know, impacts people. And it's not like war of men or fighters, etc." So people like I've seen them like admire her. But what they don't notice that in the same film later on, Hava Keller goes to the Naqab or Negev. And she's saluted by other Zionists who already occupied Naqab or colonized it. And they gathered all Arabs in one area, all Palestinians, and they were about to expel them. And they tell her, yo, you came in time. We need, you know, people to uh, make sure all Arabs are put on buses and driven out and send them to Gaza. Where they... And she says that. And she said, I took my gun and I was, you know, like very excited and I made sure no one, uh, you know, was not put on the bus and they are still in Gaza now. So. People who celebrate her story don't notice that even with someone like her, she still, after noticing what she was doing, she still participated actively in a more violent way in the expulsion of Palestinians from Naqab. And for years, she lived with that. And so it's so hard to understand sometimes the Zionist mentality, honestly. Like, it's so hard. So...
0: Well, I think your film captures well those contradictions and that range that there is, that one can have remorse and yet continue to carry out expulsions. One can know that a Palestinian refugee is simply coming back to harvest his field and kill him point blank anyway. Because I think the undertone throughout the film, too, is that, is essentially the the message of the film, which is that in order, and I think it was, One of the historians says this in order for Israel to be established, it was necessary, like it necessarily meant that Palestinians had to be ethnically cleansed, had to be expelled, had to be killed, Mm -hmm. had to be put on buses. And I think that contradiction comes through quite clearly. So just to remind our listeners and viewers, I'm Meha and I'm here with Dr. Ahlan Muhtaseb talking about her award-winning documentary, 1948, Creation and Catastrophe. So in addition to featuring Palestinians and Israelis who have personal memories of 1948, your film also has interviews with scholars who've conducted in-depth research on that fateful year. So you include Zionist scholars like Benny Morris and Mordechai Baron, who we just talked about, as well as pro-Palestinian scholars like Rashid Khalidi and Ilan Pape. So one of the things I love about the film is that you and Andy managed to convey really complex historiographical debates (laughs) that I've been immersed in myself since grad school. but you're able to convey these, these complex debates to viewers in a way that's relatively easy to digest. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more what that process was like for you. You said that it went through several iterations and screenings, did that help you figure out what needs to
1: be said? Oh, sorry, uh, I mean, not necessarily that, but but here is the process. I mean, you decide to make a film, right? So <laughs> you don't think you're gonna spend 10 years making the film, obviously, <laughs> otherwise, it, Probably wouldn't have embarked on that. So for us, it was like a matter of one or two years. But then you start with, with such a historical narrative, you notice, okay, so I interviewed Palestine. It would be great if I interviewed Israelis who talk about these issues, you know? Not necessarily that their narratives are more important or more uh, authentic or have more credibility than Palestinian narratives, but it's, you know, like in a court, right? You, It's different when someone comes and uh, actually they... Um, confess to their murder, for example, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, a second level of, of evidence in, in, in a historical narrative. And, and then you notice, it's still like there are, um, uh, you are dealing with both of them with, with memory, right? And memory is great and important, but at the same time, you could also have access to documents, you could have access to the research and literature. So it was very important to read. We actually read a lot. Um, We have have a bibliography that we share with um, our audience on our website. It's about like 20 pages long. We tried to capture, of course, not everything, but as many as we could in terms of the books and and the articles up up until 2017. And when you do that, and, you know, we we did, you know, the script for the film based on that, and we had like 260 pages of notes. Um, and, And accuracy was very, very important for us. So our really most important guiding principle was historical accuracy, because we didn't want anyone to attack us based on falsifications or, or, you know, um, so, so we really did our due diligence in terms of capturing that. So then you you notice that it, how, how do you report on those historical facts, right? So it's better if you interview the historians and let the historians explain their work, right? Uh, in, in, in visual materials, it's different, of course, than writing a book or writing a paper. So that's how we decided to interview them now. When we interviewed Mordechai Ben-Aur, we didn't interview him as a historian. I'll be honest with you. We interviewed him as someone who participated in the atrocities. And he was one of those really um, unique voices of saying it it, it, the way it is. Like he did not shy away from really giving us a piece of his mind, like like his his, uh, also thought process at that time and now. So even now, like he says, Well, I still don't want the Palestinian refugees to come back. I don't want to share the land. Like, that's not how I see Israel. Um, So that's why we interviewed him. Benny Morris is considered one of the most important historians or new Israeli historians on the topic. And we wanted to interview him because he... His scholarship is, he has good scholarship, but the problem is what he does with the scholarship, right? So there isn't anything like a neutral historian, right? So even if we disagreed with Benny, Horace, uh, Benny Morris and his um, way of interpreting history and you know, giving it ideology, I thought, we thought that it was still important to interview him as one of the main scholars who actually talked about 1948. I mean, that was his specialty. And in his scholarship, he actually does a very good job at, you know, his work, as I said, you know, devoid of his interpretation, of course, of his findings. That's a different story. So that's why we decided to interview the most uh, well-known scholars on the topic. At that time, you were not still like your book was not out, but anyway, actually we were looking for a woman, you know, a female scholar. And unfortunately the three female scholars, we approached, none of them accepted our invitation. Uh, the last one is a, um, a scholar who people don't know a lot. And her name, uh, she's, she's the author of under the cover of war, Rosemary Esper. I don't know if you know her, have you, uh, you really have to read her book. It's a great book, solid scholarship. And we really tried so hard to interview her, but she's camera shy and refused to be on camera. That's something that we we acknowledged that was lacking in the film. It, it was like male dominated to a great extent, especially in terms of the scholarship. But, but as I said, you know, it was very hard to find female scholars. Like we even in uh, I tried to interview uh, Rosemary Saheh because she did work on Palestinian women refugees, and she <laughs> refused and there was a third one which i can't remember now so we tried to to interview uh as many scholars who wrote about this as possible many usually don't have a problem accepting women not as much and the only one among the male scholars was dr rashid Khalidi. <laughs> we had to ambush him in palestine literary he was ambushed he refused he's so busy uh, uh, more than once refused to do an interview with us because he just didn't have the time. And then he was participating in a conference that Andy was covering in Palestine in 2008. And he literally like ambushed him while he was eating his sandwich and gave us like only 20 minutes of his time. But that, that was our approach is to interview as many scholars as, as possible.
0: Well, I think one of the things that you do effectively in the film by having that range of scholarly, uh, that range of scholarly views is that you're able to present the historiographical debates, but also I think what comes through are the areas of consensus, Mm -hmm. and the areas for which there is no longer, for which there still isn't consensus. So there are some points that, you know, back in the 90s was still up for debate, that's no longer a debate anymore, it's pretty settled. But then there are some points about 1948 and about the war and about the circumstances of Palestinians becoming refugees but still up for debate. Um, mm-hmm. One of the other things that I think your film does settle, I think maybe for the first time is what happened at Yassin. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, just to sort of remind everyone in Yassin, in April of 1948, there was a massacre. Palestinians have long maintained that it was uh, a very deliberate and very extensive massacre of the residents of Yassin. Um, is, you know, sort of official Israeli narratives try to downplay it, downplay its importance or its significance or it being a part of a larger uh, plan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that your combination of interviewing both the scholars, but also several survivors of the Deresi massacre really um, gives a fuller picture of what happened and how it fits into the war in a way that I think the scholarly debates never quite were able to pinpoint. So I think that's a really important um, sort of scholarly contribution as
1: well. And Dariassin, we actually managed to dispel several myths about Dariassin and uncovers facts that none actually knew existed before. For example, I don't know if people, it's hard when you are doing a film to those nuances to be very clear, but people don't notice that Ahmed Akel, our main interviewee, insisted that the massacre did not la- last only hours or, or in the range of one day. He insisted that it took place for three days. They were hiding in their house for three days. That was that, and and this is a story that was not in the original cut in the film. Mm-hmm. We had to go back in after post production, back in production by eight months to fact check everything he said to interview more people, and we came across Athman Aqal, his brother, by coincidence, San Diego. I literally met him in an anti-war rally several times. And then I asked him and he said he was from Dari Yassin. And this is what started the whole thing. He told us about his brother who wrote a book on Dari Yassin, who was 11 years old. But when we went back and said, like, how is that even, like, how can you include a, a, a story that we already saw, like, some contradiction in it, but actually we were able to write an exact timeline that made it possible that the massacre took place over two days and they found them the third day. Mm-hmm. How we did that, we went and read and read, and you go back and dig for the little details. And one of the things is that the Red Cross um, a representative who went actually to check the massacre at that time, he went the second day. And when he was in Daria supposedly the massacre was supposed to have ended, he actually still was able to hear shots
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the second day. So that was the first step, like second day, it is possible that still they were shooting people. He didn't see, but he was hearing them while he was touring their scene. And then um, there were reports actually that said that, that the, the search extended for the third day. And that's his point. His point is we hid in the house the house was very high and his family actually mounted very strong resistance against uh, designers. They kept on fighting them and they couldn't. really. It was like the way he described it, the house and we tried to film the house, but we were not allowed. We were not given permission to go and film in the area scene. But his description, and I don't know if the house still exists. It, it sounded like it was like almost a castle, mm-hmm. like a very high house and high altitude on the top of a hill that they couldn't really uh, reach it. So we really did a lot of investigative reporting kind of work really to build the timeline to then fact check the stories, especially the bakery story that a lot of people, you know, got horrified uh, listening to it. And one thing we know about Sin is that we know there are at least hundreds of pictures that were taken that are still hidden in Israeli archives, and that's a very important point. People don't notice that Israel still maintains this control over the majority of archive, inclu- archives, including Palestinian archives, through their embargo information act, uh, information embargo act, sorry, and uh, that was extended two times. So the first. Uh, at the beginning of the creation of the state of Israel, Israel, uh, the embargo information related to 1948 was 50 years. That's why you have all the new Israeli historian coming out in 1998 with their books, because they were able to access the archives. So they were saying basically finding evidence to what Palestinians have been saying before and Palestinian scholars, but then that created a lot of embarrassment for the Israeli government and there was a legal battle actually in courts for years until the Israeli government managed to reinstate the embargo for another 20 years and reclassifying a lot of the information they declassified in 1998. And that embargo was extended yet another 20 years, uh, two years ago by the Netanyahu government at the end of uh, 2019. Uh, for another 20 years, so we can't really see the majority of archives, of documents, of information, both Palestinian and Israeli, until nine, the year 2038. And the question is, of course, what are they hiding? And part of what i are hiding is actually, as I said, we found uh, evidence. So, so the Haganah, which was the main Zionist uh, militia. That was instrumental in creating the state of Israel, Israel. Maintained for years that they had no knowledge of the Yassin or no uh, any role in the Yassin. but we know now, as a, you know, from testimonies and and evidence that that was not true. They knew. They implanted two spies from the Haganah. One of them was supposed to fight with the Haganah forces in the Yassin and also collect. Um, intelligence, you know, reports. So we know there are reports even from that person hiding somewhere. And the other person was tasked with taking pictures. So we know those exist and we tried to get them during the film process. We actually submitted what translates into FOIA in the United States, Freedom of Information Act request. They have something similar in Israel, which is a joke because (laughs) they don't really give you anything, but we tried twice and, We haven't even heard back from them. Like uh, the last time we were told that it was put on the uh, desk of uh, Ayala Shaked, uh, Shaked, who said, you know, we should kill little snakes before, Mm -hmm. you know, mother snakes or bigger snakes, referring to Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So imagine, you know, like, I I don't know what she did. Uh, Probably she threw it in the trash or something.
0: Probably, but I think it's a testament even more so to the, to the scholarly contributions of your film and then also the broader contributions of your film in terms of raising broader awareness, particularly given that the Israeli government is still hiding so much about what it did and what the Zionist militias did to the Palestinians um, in 1948. So it really is a huge accomplishment given all of the obstacles also that you faced um, in mm. making the film, both in terms of time and budget, but also just to uh, clarify something that you mentioned earlier, you said that Andy's the one who went to Israel to interview um, Israelis, and I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but is that because you're a Palestinian, you're Palestinian American, but you're from Al Khalil, you're from Hebron in the West Bank, so you have a Palestinian Hawiya or identity card, mm. which typically prevents Palestinians, even with American citizenship. Yeah. From being
1: able to go inside. So is that what, it's what happened in your case as well? Yeah, yeah. So I had, I couldn't have access for two reasons. The first one is what exactly what you just said, which is the fact that I'm a Palestinian who has the ID card uh, from the West Bank. I'm from Al-Khalil or Hebron. So physically, I cannot go into any areas that are considered Israeli areas you know, although the West Bank is under Israeli occupation, but that's a different story, but, you know, they prevent us, you know, the uh, citizens of the West Bank and Gaza from entering Israeli areas. And so that was the physical aspect of my uh, uh, lack of access. The second aspect is, of course, the psychological or mental one. I mean, we decided from day one, someone like me, I mean, I'm white passing, but I have a hijab, right? And my name is Ahlam. And I don't speak Hebrew. I, I speak a little bit of Hebrew. I don't speak it fluently. So because of that, you know, we assumed, probably correctly, that Israelis are not going to be comfortable sitting down and do an interview with me about what they did to my ancestors, basically. Uh, and even if they accepted that, probably they would hide and they they wouldn't really. And probably they self-censored, even with Andy. Andy, when people ask him about how he, did, how he managed to talk to people and get that out of them, he said, I, I, I play, played the uh, California dude, you know, type of like, hi, you know, <laughs> laid back personality that worked a lot. Um, and he said he just, he, he didn't speak Hebrew. So for him, he just, although some of them spoke in English, he just let them talk basically uh, without any interruption or I did a lot of probing, for example, of Palestinian uh, interviewees while he didn't probe Israelis. He just let them talk. Um, and I guess he managed to a great extent to get uh, a lot of things out of them. Although I I always wondered, like, how much did they hold off oh, wow. or hold, uh, held back? Yeah.
0: Well, I think this is a fantastic film. Um, as you know, I've been uh, showing it to my students in my class, especially the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And students always come away <laughs> with a sense of both the competing narratives. I think it, your film presents both sides, quote unquote, both sides very well and very um, honestly and faithfully. But also gives them, gives people, viewers a sense of the power imbalance that was nonetheless. Um, at play. So, uh, last but not least, Ahlam, where can people watch your film, "1948: Creation and Catastrophe"?
1: Thank you, thank you for showing the film and. Um... I, I heard a lot of professors actually across the United States and beyond show it on campuses, and that's great. and I think part of it is the fact that it's adopted by Canopy. Uh, Canopy is uh, kind of like uh, the academic platform that is let's say, like the academic Netflix, right? It looks like
0: um, Netflix too, the, the interface. If yeah, you, that's true. You have a, if you're university, if you're a part of a university that subscribes to Canopy. It does look a lot like logging
1: into Netflix. Yes, yes, to a great extent. So uh, that's that's the first thing is like for professors, for academicians, or students, they can get it from Canopy, or they can could if they don't have access to Canopy, they could request. I think that's the best way is to get a, a request a, a, an institutional license. This is a nonprofit project for me and Andy. We don't make any money, but of course we have distributors, and the distributors. They care about that. So um, uh, for individuals, they could either rent it or buy it from Amazon or from iTunes. Um, And I think it's also even on Google Play, if I'm not mistaken. Um, It's also available for free on a platform called Toby, only in the United States and and Canada, T-U-B-I, toby Uh, with commercials of course that's the catch so if you want it for free you can watch it there and for people outside of the United States because of licensing against you know restrictions they could order it directly from Vimeo either rent it or buy it uh, directly from Vimeo a lot of you know um, people in Europe outside of UK I think they usually use Vimeo Mm -hmm. to buy it um it's also on hoopla i don't know if you know hoopla but it's a platform for actually public libraries yeah
0: so lots of platforms lots of options and they can also see some of those options on the film's website is that right yes movie.com yes
1: 1948 movie one word.com that's right
0: so i highly recommend it to everyone if you're a student or not Uh, so thank you so much dr for sharing your time today and congratulations on such an excellent and eye-opening film and thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of occupied thoughts please make sure to check out the fmap website www.fmep.org for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to palestine and israel and please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one, on YouTube. And with that, I am Mahan Saad, signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied
1: Thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me.
0: Thank you.